we're looking now at Joseph enslaved. And I've called it uh, 13 years a slave. I know I've got this wrong. But it does, the mathematics do work out. He's been two, two, uh, he was th- uh, 11 years with Potiphar. Two years now, he's in the, uh, the, 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 the prison of Pharaoh and, Potiphar, and under Potiphar's guard, essentially. And we're going to read these few sections. So let's start by looking at Scripture. It says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid him no attention to anything that was not in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard. In the prison where Joseph was confined, and the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody." And one night they both dreamed, and the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each to his own dream, and each dreamt with its, uh, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Steep man, Joseph. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody at his master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? And they said to him, We've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes. I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. Oh dear. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaohs. Where's Doughboy? Sorry about that. Okay. Three, we've had some fantastic food this morning. You, you, you cook up a storm, by the way. Terrific. Um, and in the uppermost basket, with all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from from you. So not such a favorable interpretation. 
And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast of all his servants, feast for all his servants, <laughs> and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker amongst his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So what's the story so far? We've been told how God loves messy families and in Canaan, um, Joseph was part of a really messy family. He was taken prisoner when he, after he walked from Hebron to Shechem and then Shechem to Dothan. He was taken prisoner in Dothan by, or put into cavity, uh, ca- captivity in Dothan and trekked all the way down to the east side of the Nile Delta. We don't know exactly where, but we know the people of Israel settled eventually in Shechem, uh, sorry, Goshen, um, and he married somebody from On. And On is down the bottom on the left-hand side where it says Nile and Goshen, you can see there. So somewhere around there was Pharaoh's palace. He was taken to the city of Pharaoh's palace. We know that because of the proximity of this story to Pharaoh and also the proximity of Pharaoh's general, Potiphar, to uh, Pharaoh himself. Um, that's a d- journey that would have probably taken about 20 days, by the way. So if you imagine walking through the desert for 20, 20 days or so, <clears throat> and there he is in Potiphar's house for 11 years and Pharaoh's jail for two years thereafter. Now, if you read the, uh, the, the uh, archaeological accounts of this, you'll find that a lot of scholars don't believe this actually happened. I don't believe the exodus actually happened. Now, I, I picked up this book several years ago. In 1995, David Roll wrote this book, Pharaoh and Kings, and he tried to correlate Egyptology and Canaanite history together. Egyptology is fantastic. Pictures everywhere. Language on the walls. Lots and lots of history for you to see, but in Canaan there's nothing. And he tried to correlate it through. And he, he used the, he, using some data that he put together, he put an un- against, uh, together an unconventional revised chronology of the 19th to the 25th Egyptian dynasties. And if those, any of you who know Egyptology, that goes from the, the, uh, the, the late kingdom to the third intermediate period. So that's the kings that started that dynasty were Ramesses I, Seti I, Ramesses II. Big guys. In, uh, Tutankhamun was part of the, the late kingdom. Um, and then the inter- third intermediate period was that bit between then and the um, uh, Ptolemaic period where the Greeks and Romans took over. But, um, and they were kings that came up from the south, the Nubian kings, the, Hiska- um, uh, the, the Kushite kings. <clears throat> and this book re-identified some of the chronology and tied it in with biblical, bi- uh, bi- the biblical um, uh, Uh, the biblical narrative and he believes that this is a picture of Joseph taken from a statue that they found in Goshen it had been defaced at the time as an indicator of Joseph's fall from favour later on but he was able to tie things together in a way that I felt made complete and utter sense and in the story so far we find that Joseph's life is not really going the way it should do But retrospect is a wonderful thing, and that's how we can put the last sentence in there. My life may not be going the way I planned it, but it's going exactly the way God planned it. But the trouble is, Joseph was living it out day by day. He was living in the reality of his life. But we, in retrospect, can see how God has his hand in it. But the difficulty of living a life under God 
is that sometimes we can't see God's hand. And that's where we are at the moment. And that's what I want, to, want us to learn from in this particular situation. Oh yeah, this is a, uh, this is a picture of our journey from Northumberland back uh, up to Northumberland this week. And I felt, for, I felt for Joseph because this is our modern day equivalent of Joseph waits for his time in history. This is our wait going up, north, up to Northumberland um, with just a, a little vote of thanks. But we're never quite sure when it's going to come to an end. <clears throat> uh, it did eventually, but there we are. So I'm going to take you through three quick P's and two dreams. I want to look at personality, potential, positioning, and the two, two dreams together. And Pete, I want to thank you for putting this on King's, King's Church website, uh, King's, men, uh, King's Church Men. There's, there's an article there that, that Peter put up um, about being hurt. Why some people are more hurt by breakups than others. And it boils down to this, that if you're a sort of pers- person who feels that your personality is completely and utterly fixed then rejection means that your core being is being rejected and therefore you become more hurt, you're hurt for longer and you feel it for longer, you feel it deeper. Yes, if you're the sort of person whose personality is malleable and you believe that this is just something I can move on from, it's something I can learn from and change, then actually you're less hurt and you see rejection as part of life. And this this is what, uh, and, and this got me going on... How does our personality influence the way in which God can work through us and God can help deal with the things that thrown up in life? Because we begin to learn that Joseph had stuff thrown at him through life. And actually what we believe about ourselves will radically influence the way we behave. To the extent that if we believe that our personality is completely fixed, we are likely to believe that we can't change. Now, as God is in the business of changing lives, that can sometimes bring about conflict. Let me show you something. Valjean, at last, we see each other plain. Monsieur le maire, you wear a different chain. Before you say another word, Chabert, before you chain me up like a slave again, listen to me, there is something I must do. This woman leaves behind a suffering child. There is none but me who can intercede. In mercy's name, three days are all I need. Then I'll return. I pledge my word. Then I'll return. You must think me mad. I've hunted you across the years. Men like you can never change a man such as you.
there I was born inside a jail I was born with scum like you I am from the gutter too It sends tingles down my spine every time I hear that song. And if those of you who have not read Victor Hugo's book, um, Les Miserables, it's worth it. Um, don't try and read it in the original French. Uh, there are lots of wonderful English versions around. But it actually depicts, these two characters depict the two personalities in that article uh, from Time magazine online. Um, it's a book about the transforming power of Christ in the life of an oppressed petty thief who then changes his name to Jean Valjean. And it's a book about the conflict between truth and righteousness, grace and legalism. And Valjean is the man who's able to learn from adversity, has the malleable personality, and changes life from one of a thief to a philanthropist mayor, to a surrogate father, to a rescuer of other people through faith. But to do so, he has to break the law. The other side of the argument is Javert, the police officer who believes that a man cannot change, that justice is righteousness, those that break the law have no value irrespective of the good that they do, a man who ultimately takes his own life over the conflict that that raises because of an act of compassion from the lawbreaker Valjean, the inflexible personality the one who believes that we are fixed in the way in which our personalities come about. And what about Joseph in all of this? Well, we've seen his personality change through the story so far, and it'll change again in the next part of the story uh, next week and the week after. We've seen him go from spoilt teenager in a messy family through to a hated captive, to a hard-working slave, to a trusted household manager to a victim of injustice, to a deposed prisoner, stripped of all his authority and his position, and then now becoming a trusted prisoner. And Joseph learned, or Joseph we see, reaped the whirlwind, or reaped aspects of his personality all the way along the lives at the line here. As a sport teenager with apparent arrogance, he reaped alienation, hostility and violence. As a hard-working slave, he reaped, um, his faithfulness reaped recognition and authority. As an honest prisoner, his trust reaped favour, friendship and intimacy. So the way in which our personality impacts upon life is actually very important. And we know that from scripture. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual work, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. It's the process of transformation. You see, we can change 
if we choose to do so, and Joseph clearly chose to do so. You see, God is working in us and with our cooperation. For some reason, God has shackled himself to us as his creation, and he will not work unless we choose to work with him. Unless Joseph chose to work with God, he would not have gone to where he got to. And it's the same for us. We can choose to work with God. With, <clears throat> he can work with our cooperation. Or he can work without it in some extent. But maybe work through someone else. God's presence, our will to do his work. By the renewal of our mind. The way we think. The way we do things. The way we perceive things. And therefore how we behave. A process that Joseph demonstrated as his life moved on. Because we begin to see that actually Joseph lives out this life as well. That actually through suffering, <clears throat> he could know that his suffering produces something of fruit. Endurance, character, hope. And that hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love was poured out in those circumstances. Now we know that in retrospect, but Joseph was living it in real time. Did he know it? He probably did, but there were times I suspect when he thought, God, where are you? Yet we know that God was with him, was pouring out his love into Joseph's um, life at that time. Or to put it another way, Joseph was able to use his suffering as an advantage in life because God was working in his life and constantly changing him and we begin to realize that actually Joseph didn't see the rejection that he went through as a rejection of his core values, but because his core values was established in God. And therefore he was able to move on. He could have chose to stay the same. He could have chose to stay the arrogant teenager and become pompous with a chip on his shoulder, alienated, ineffective and ridiculed. He could have chose to stay hurt and grieved by the injustice that was in his life through being taken into captivity or by throwing into prison unjustly. And he could have become stuck and a bitter victim. Or he could have chosen to opt out and say, it's just too hard and drop out of the system or drop out of life altogether as some choose to do tragically. Or he could choose to engage with the present and grow in experience and redeem the past with God's grace. And where does salt and light start taking place? It starts taking place when we engage with the present and allow God to redeem the past to redeem the things that we go through at the same time as changing us. John Wimber once said in reference to Joseph's father, uh, Jacob, never trust a leader who doesn't limp. Never trust a leader that's not been through trouble and come out of it the other side a better person because of that trouble. Because God has helped them to deal with their personality, their circumstances. And actually, I would go further to a little bit further and quote this chap, Don Miller. Some of you may have read his book, Blue Like Jazz. It's a fantastic book. Um, <clears throat> and he, he went on to say, not actually in this book, but a conference that I went to when he was speaking, said the injustices in your life are not as important as how you react to them and how you learn from them. He even went as far to say, God's not interested in the injustices in your life. He's just interested in how you respond to them. <laughs> 
And Chuck Swindoll basically said this as well. I, I think it's a very, very useful thing. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to, more, to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, money, circumstances, failure, success. What other people think or say or do? It's more important than appearance, giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church or a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that that people will act in a certain way. The only thing we can do is play the one string that we have, and that's our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And and, And so it is with you and with me. We are in charge of our attitudes. And I think Joseph... Here's where the technology has now broken down. There we go. So, let's look at some of our attitudes. What do you see here? Give me some feedback. The picture on the left, what do you see? Which lady? Do you see the wife or her mother? You see both, yes? Can you both see that? Some of you can, some of you can't. There's the wife. And there's the mother. Okay, what do you see on the right-hand side? What do you see on the right-hand side? Eight zebra crossings. <laughs> Eight zebra crossings. Now, the one thing I want to ask you is, are these lines straight? Each of those lines are perfectly straight, but put them next to staggered boxes like that and they appear not to be. It's interesting, what we see and what we believe is actually sometimes a product of the way our mind works. And therefore, we can choose to do things on the basis of what we think is right, but actually turns out to be just an interpretation and may from time to time be untrue or incorrect. Let's take the, let's do, let's do another one. Let's do another one. What do you see here? Come on, shout out, anybody. Okay, we see a castle, see a, see a beach, see the sea, sunset, sunrise, sunrise, yeah. What else do you see? See a person? You see, if as a photographer, I see this as a lousy picture. <laughs> the horizon's not straight, it's overexposed, and there's somewhere in, somewhere in the way of this picture, and it gets in the way, and I don't like it. <clears throat> Why? Because I think it ought to look something like that. The first one lacked impact and was distracting because of its imperfections. This is a photographer's photograph. You see, what we see depends on the perspective that we have on what we're looking at. From a technical point of view, I like this one better than the other one. You may have liked both. 
because it demonstrated something of the wonders of God's creation. But the way we come to something also impacts upon the way we think. <clears throat> so both may be a sunrise over Bamber Castle, but the second one is more of a technical exact, uh, exact reproduction of what I wanted. You see, our mindsets will alter the way in which we see the world, and being aware of that in ourselves and in others will give us insights into how we can achieve being salt and light in our society. So how we deal with the person who is outcome-driven compared to the person who is people-driven or the person who is evidence-driven is very different. And each one of us in this room fits into, at least partly into one of those categories. The outcome-driven person is the one who likes to drive a sports car, uh, fix deadlines, and have an, an achievable aim at the end of something. The, per, the person-driven uh, individual is somebody who thinks and feels for the people within the circumstances and what they're going through and how they respond and, uh, and um, the sort of social worker type response, if you like. Sorry, caricature. Or the evidence-driven person is the somebody who says, do we have enough evidence to say they, we should go from here to here and do this? They're like submarines. They disappear for long periods of time, analyse the data, come up and say, here's the answer. And each of us have a little bit of that in, 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 in us, some more than others. And actually knowing the perspective that we come from will enable us to deal with life itself. What do you see here? It's a fire. It's a fire in, in some grass, isn't it? But it's not. I know that this is a double exposure. And actually what you're seeing here is a fire on a beach superimposed on the grass. What would you have done if you'd seen that fire? You'd try to put it out. Sent for the fire brigade. The trouble is the fact that it's not real means that we've acted on an unbelief or, an, or acted on something we believe to be true but actually wasn't true at all. And we can do that all the time. We can believe things that are true, act on them, and find that we get ourselves into really hot water. We can choose the way in which we behave. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I've got myself into so many problems over that particular time. I said I would talk, talk about how we left um, our last church, but I don't think we're going to have time to do it, but I'll do it at some other time. But it's all down to perception and the way in which we respond to the things that we see around us and how we do it as to whether or not we bring life into a situation or we actually bring destruction. And that goes basically... Can you hit the button, guys? There we go. Whoa! Can you go back to the beginning of... Next slide. Slide back. Okay, we're there. So, what do you see? I mean, those of you who are kids will know what I'm getting at here. When you see somebody who's sultry or standoffish or brash or angry or quiet or arrogant, what do you see? You see that attitude. But it's interesting that behind that there may be something else. There may be that there's somebody who's shy or just trying to be thoughtful or maybe they're insecure or hurt, or maybe they're worried, or maybe they're just confident, and we dislike the fact that they're confident. I remember once at a previous church, uh, a rather gregarious individual started to become slightly morose, and everybody sort of said, oh, just go through a face. I got chatting to him, and two weeks later, his wife walked out on him, 
and he told me he was struggling with his sexuality. Behind the change in behaviour was clearly something else that was going on. We need to be able to pick up on that. We need to be aware of that in our own characters because for Joseph, <clears throat> his favouritism may, be for, may have been for him. For him, there may be something else behind the, the, the arrogance that we saw, behind the favouritism that we saw. For him, it was security. For him, it was education. Behind the arrogance, perhaps there was a desire to be honest, but he just didn't know how to do it properly. Behind the tactlessness, perhaps there was a desire to be included amongst his brothers, but because his father had made him different. So he didn't know how to do it. So being tactless was his only, way of, his only understanding of how he could do it, and that distanced him further. And being a dreamer got him into trouble because he, he, was, he tactlessly gave away his dreams. But actually for him, it was a gift in evolution. You see, for each one of us, God looks on us differently. He looks on us in our hearts. He sees beyond the superficial, the brash, arrogance, insensitive, tactless, right the way through to the person who he desires us to be and can see as potential because he looks upon the heart. Jackie Pullinger is a, a, an example of this. Um, <clears throat> she was rejected by missionary societies and on the advice of a friend went east on a steamer and was simply told, get off when God tells you to get off. <clears throat> she went one-way ticket and with $10 in her pocket got off at Hong Kong. She became a teacher in the Kowloon Wall City, this thing here, looks horrible. Um, a place of fear place of drugs, place of gangs, opium trade, prostitution, addiction, rife within its stifled, horrible um, uh, environment. By 1981, she developed a society that was turning around the lives of drug addicts and prostitutes within the walled city. And in 1994, her work saw the walled city demolished. From somebody who was rejected by the conventional missionary societies, but had the potential that God saw in her with $10 in her pocket brought about the destruction and the change in the life of, of the people within the walled city, building rehabilitation homes and finally getting money to do it from the Hong Kong government. Jackie Pullinger, a woman with potential that God could see and God used. So what of dreams in all of this? There are two dreams, and we talked about those, uh, the, the, the cupbearer and the baker, the butler and the baker to, to Pharaoh. There they were in, uh, in prison with Joseph. Uh, Joseph had been assigned to them, got alongside them. And we find that, <clears throat> that uh, Joseph is able to interpret their dreams for reasons that we're not quite sure whether the butler and the baker recognize Joseph as somebody who can interpret, uh, who, who, who at least they can talk to. It's interesting that he developed that friendship. He developed that ability to talk in a way that would, in some prison situations, if you were to uncover yourself with that situation, would make yourself very vulnerable. Yet Joseph was able to protect that vulnerability. Well, in one sense he was, not for the baker perhaps, but, uh, um, <clears throat> but he was able to protect that vulnerability in the relationship that they had. But what of dreams? I think I need to say a little bit about dreams. Well, they occur sporadically through the Bible. Um, <clears throat> Gideon had a dream 
Jacob uh, had a dream. Daniel interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Joseph in the Old Testament, clearly, we're, we're looking at now. And Joseph in the New Testament um, uh, ha, um, had dreams. Um, and they, in the Old Testament, they're given prophetic status. Dreamers with dreams that seem to come from God. And, but we're told that in the Old Testament, there were true dreamers and false dreamers. Those who would dream dreams that were actually not of God at all and give false interpretation. And actually, prophetic dreams are said to be a time of the end times. Joel is quoted in Acts by Peter in Acts 2. And your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams as a sign of the end times. But for every significant dream in Scripture, and this is the one the most important part, is that God is recognised as the dream giver. And God is recognised as the interpreter who just simply chooses to use an individual to interpret. And you see, dream interpretation was Joseph's gifting from God, just as your gifting may be prophecy or tongues or interpretation of tongues. Or it may be that you've got a gift of administration or you've got a gift of teaching or you've got a gift of whatever it is you've been given a gift of. And Joseph's gift was a gift of dream interpretation. It was a gift in evolution. It was used to great effectiveness. But it's a gift nonetheless. And my, my personal feeling on dreams is that you can fall into uh, in, along a spectrum from two points. The first, the first spectrum <clears throat> is that every dream has, a sp- has spiritual value and that you can see in every dream something of God. So therefore, I can wake up in the morning, believe I've dreamt of a walk, of a, an, an alarm clock upon which has been paled an octopus and that has meaning. Okay? <clears throat> but ultimately, that position, in my mind, this is a personal, please, it's personal, defies common sense. And in one sense, we also know from Scripture that there are some dreams that are true and some dreams that are false. False dreamers are highlighted in Scripture in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, you know, the dream of the statue with the, the gold head and the feet of clay and, 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 and iron, Daniel, who's not given the, the dream, says the king has had a right dream. So in other words, there's a situation in which there has to be some aspect in which the dream is definitely given. So going to this end of the spectrum seems seems daft, because if you go to this end of the spectrum, you have to have a formula for interpreting the dream. And therefore it becomes formulaic. Um, And unfortunately that formula becomes a substitute for a relationship with the dream giver, because that's where God wants us to be, in relationship with him. See, God's desire is to communicate, but actually he communicates through relationship. Or the other end of the spectrum is to, is that, uh, is to go right the way to the other way and say, well, dreams are just an expression of our subconscious, it's all nonsense. But actually, if you take the biblical position in this, there's clearly precedence for dream interpretation within the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's for now as well as then. And it's given as a sign of the last days. So we have to be discerning. Do you have a gift of discernment? If we have a gift of somebody who can, who can interpret dreams, we need somebody with a gift of discernment who can discern whether the gift... Of, okay, won't go there. <clears throat> okay. And those who've acted on dreams will testify that they've seen God at work. And one of the obvious examples of that is if Joseph, uh, the father of Jesus, or the, the earthly father of Jesus, hadn't acted on a dream, Jesus would have been murdered by Herod. John White, in the, author of, the author of the book The Fight, gives an example of a situation where he dreamt that he should not, uh, that his wife should not get 
on a flight because the flight was going to come down. He couldn't get hold of his wife. He went frantic not being able to get hold of his wife. And the next thing he heard is that the plane had come down. And then he got a telephone call. Her donates your wife. Because God had given her the same dream. Amazing. But God's desire is to communicate. Ultimately, and he communicates in very many ways. And dreams are perhaps just one way in which he, can communi- he communicates with us. Um, <clears throat> so let me... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why would Jesus be called the Word if God didn't want to communicate with us? (laughs) It's a fundamental that God wants to speak into our lives, to discuss things with us, to speak and for us to hear and respond. For us to speak to him, for him to respond in, in relationship God wants to communicate. It's fundamental. It just so happens that God has chosen more frequently these days to speak through Jesus Christ. So those things that reflect on Jesus Christ or show Jesus Christ are much more likely to give us where God is at than perhaps a dream that we're not quite so sure about. That's not to throw dreams out, but it's just to say that God's means of communication has actually come through relationship. And anything that denies that relationship, we're not talking to God and God's not talking to us. We're just being legalistic. We're just being formulaic. And then my final point is that actually, Joseph was being positioned for greatness. Now, hardships for Joseph... uh, John C.S. Lewis said this, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Now, I have to warn you that there is a spoiler alert coming. If I can get this thing to move forward. There we go. We're running out of... Can you move it? There we go. And back we go. Um, This is the Ramesseum of Ramesses II on the east bank of the Nile at Karnak. Um, it's actually the part of the, uh, the Nile that wasn't populated because the east side was the side that was seen as the side of death. The west side was seen as the sign of life. So all the people lived on Karnak and they came over to the east side. So it's quite useful to put things here that people wouldn't raid. And the belief is that these areas here, these domed, in this rather badly stitched together two photographs, these domed um, uh, storage areas were possibly the storage, the, part of the storage um, uh, rooms of Joseph. You see, Joseph was positioned for a destiny that was great. He was positioned for a destiny uh, that would allow him to save Egypt. But actually there was a bit more to it than that. He was positioned as a sport teenager. He was positioned as a slave. He was positioned as a household administrator. And he was positioned as a prisoner. In other words, there's something for each aspect of his life that God seemed to teach him that ultimately set him up to be the right-hand man of Pharaoh. You see, as a sport teenager, he learned 
through his education, to read and to write, and probably learnt farming techniques that were going to be useful in the later uh, farming of crops. As a slave, he learnt hardship, obedience, he learnt survival, and he learnt tact. As a household administrator, he learnt work ethic. He learnt man management, or person management, sorry to be sexist. But actually, he was the household manager to Potiphar, the general of Pharaoh, and also the keeper of the prison. So therefore, he would have overheard army tactics, public order defences systems, how to exercise authority, Egyptian politics. He would have overheard all of that over dinner. God was setting himself up. If you want to take one-tenth of the grain of everybody in Egypt and store it up for five years without them raiding it, you need experience in how to uh, go about public order, uh, um, uh, dealing with public order. And Joseph learnt that probably in Potiphar's household. As a prisoner, he learnt patience. He learnt how to be honest to himself with his dreams and his interpretation. He learnt how his gifting could grow and how it could affect others. He learnt about Pharaoh's household. It was Pharaoh's prison. It was where the political prisoners would have been put. It was the, where the prisoners from Pharaoh's household were put. He would have learnt about the running of prisons, law, the running of Pharaoh's household, and what political prisoners were in prison for to avoid that. You see, ultimately in all of this, God gave opportunities to Joseph in every phase of his life. And God lives much more by the calendar than he does by the clock. So what is God's plan? Well, God's plan for Joseph was first of all to save him from himself. In order to save his family. But behind that... God's plan for Joseph was to save his family from salvation and ultimately his lineage from destruction because behind that was God's plan to save his people from destruction and to save his creation, you and me, through salvation. Anna earlier on in, in words talked about suffering not being in vain. Joseph went through suffering But it wasn't in vain because he was part of God's plan of salvation. If one of God's plans is to talk and to speak and to communicate, the other is to save. And God still wants to save. And sometimes God's knowledge is unfathomable. Pete, I think you brought that in a a word this morning, the unfathomable knowledge of God. That sometimes we go through things and we just don't know where God is, but ultimately he's positioning us for something in his plan of salvation. Because God knows the present and the future. He knows the plans that he has for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's plan of salvation was seen out through Joseph. He is a picture of resurrection 
a precious son who becomes nothing, identifies with the suffering of others, suffers through adversity, suffers through injustice, is raised to a new position, and becomes a savior to his people. Joseph is a picture of Christ, a very poor picture of Christ, yet a picture nonetheless. And all because God positioned him and saw in him something that others couldn't. But what God did with Joseph, God wants to do with all of us. To deal with our personality, to make it more Christ-like. To build his relationship with us. To position us to be salt and light. To be men and women of influence. To be those who are able to bring his plan of salvation. I wonder if we can all just stand up. And if the music group can come down. Okay. Some of you may feel you want to respond to that. We're going to finish at this point. But if you want to respond to that and come up for prayer just while the others are going off for coffee, then please do so. I'm taking too much time. I'm sorry. But I just want to pray because there's maybe somebody there who feels that they want to respond to that knowledge of Christ that Christ wants to save. So just close your eyes for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks to save, to change, to move, to position, and to redeem. We thank you that you want to change hearts and minds to become more like your son, and you want your son to be part of each one of us. I want to pray, Lord, that if any here feel that that is a need in this morning, that they would come forward. I want to pray, Lord, that each of us would know your spirit in such a way that we're able to respond to that message that you speak to us every day through your son, that one of salvation. Amen.